0: Dan. and Dan good to have you on the show once again. I want to talk to him a little bit about the play-in round. How it's uh last certainly it's uh I think last uh, last night was fun. Uh, I'm not sure there's always quality postseason level of basketball play, but uh how do you like the play-in round? Let, let's just get to the to the bottom line first as far as that goes.
1: Yeah, I don't, you know, they've been super entertaining over the years. And even if people don't think it's the highest level of basketball, there's the element of March Madness to it, where you have teams dealing with single elimination, um, or you need to, you know, you could lose twice and have, be upset and squander the seventh or eighth seed, which is traditionally just that guaranteed postseason bid. And so, obviously, those seven or eight seeds probably don't like that setup, but it adds just a different layer of stakes and interest to the equation.
0: So, do we know? I mean, it's been going on for a couple, three years now. Do we know if the public likes the play-in round, and is the NBA getting what it expected?
1: Yeah, I think, look, it seems to be universally adored. Again, I'm sure fans of the 7 and 8 seeds, if they see their teams fall out of that spot, um, you know, Timberwolves fans, for instance, going into Friday, they might not be crazy about that situation and players on those teams, but I just think that it's added, uh, you know, a ton of interest, and you just have to look at kind of how many teams stuck with it for longer in the season, where and the Lakers are a perfect example. We're in the playoff now. Yes, they ended up finishing 7th, but do they make those trades at the deadline when they were in 10th or 11th if they didn't think that they were as close to play-in contention, let alone getting into one of those final playoff spots? And So I think it's kept more teams engaged for longer into the season, and I think that's a good thing for a league that kind of struggles to ascribe meaning to an 82-game regular season.
0: Okay, so let's get to the Lakers from Tuesday night since you brought up the Lakers yeah, that was an interesting game. Uh, not a particularly well-played fourth quarter in overtime, but it was an interesting game for sure. The Lakers seemed to kind of escape. You know, did the Lakers, you know, stumbling along there and then winning the game, did, does that change your opinion of the Lakers? What is your opinion of the Lakers? And did that uh, game on uh, on Tuesday night change your opinion at all?
1: No, I think it kind of just reinforced how – uneasy I am about them and how unsettled they seem. Um, Their rotation is bizarre. They have, in theory, six guys they could trust, but you look at towards the end of that game, and a lot of the players, Malik Beasley, DeAngelo, Russell, that you acquired at the trade deadline were supposed to be super important. They weren't on the court for some of the most important stretches, and yet you go back and look, since the Lakers started 2-10, they're 41-29, with basically a top-10 defense and top-10 offense. Uh, that's not something that you can just dismiss. And now you're going up against a Grizzlies team that has been better offensively with the growth of Jaron Jackson Jr. and Desmond Bain, but they're missing two of their primary bigs and Steven Adams and, and Brandon Clark. So they do feel uniquely vulnerable. And I think a lot of people, if not a majority of people, are going to pick the Lakers to win that series. I just don't know if you can trust the Lakers' offense enough, as we saw, not just against the Timberwolves at points, but just over and over again over the season, even when both LeBron and AD were playing.
0: Okay, I'm going to be bouncing around here quite a bit, uh, so I don't really have much of a chronological order here. But Tuesday night, also, uh, you know, Atlanta, you know, physically dominated against Miami. Were you surprised uh, that Miami was not the? When's the last time Miami wasn't like the aggressor in a postseason game?
1: Yeah, I I was kind of shocked at how that one played out. Uh, the Heat have been pretty bad offensively all season. Um, but to kind of look at how passive they were, how many bunnies Jimmy Butler ended up missing at the rim, yeah. how uninvolved them at a bio felt at points, uh, that, was, that was a real shock. And I think it forces you to reevaluate not just the heat as they look to get into the playoffs still, but um, scaling forward and to see what they need to do over the offseason and beyond to maximize this window that they still have with Jimmy Butler.
0: So next up for Miami is a you know, loser-goes-home game against the Bulls. The Bulls, of course, win last night. What did you think of the Bulls' victory last night, and how do you think they match up against the Heat?
1: I had initially picked the Bulls, and I was clearly not feeling great about that pick for a good chunk of the, the Raptors game. But you look at Chicago, and Zach Levine catches fire in the second half. DeMar um, DeRosa made some big plays down the stretch. Uh, those are guys that can get into the teeth of the Heat's defense, and I think what's been even more noteworthy about Chicago is that their defense has been, by and large, even without Lonzo, really, really good this season. The ball pressure that they're getting from Alex Caruso and Patrick Williams, and even um, from Patrick Beverly when he's on the floor, um, and running through smaller lineups with Derek Jones Jr., I think they're kind of built to put a ton more pressure on the Heat and disrupt an offense, that, again, if you slow them down out of transition, they're just not... Very good, and so I think a lot of people will believe that Miami can rebound, and you know they'll be at home and and they'll win. But I just wouldn't discount the Bulls, who have been on sort of a mini tear uh, since the since the trade deadline, basically. Let's
0: kind of do a little eulogy here for Toronto. They collapse in the second half. Other than the eighteen missed free throws, what happened? And is Nick Nurse moving on?
1: Uh, they're just really shallow, and it's. It's an issue that plagued them last year, and then to see them not really address it over the offseason heading into to this year was, was very bizarre. Um, then they also you know they delayed uh, making a move on the trade market. It's a Jakob-Fertl trade. I understood it, but you were in a position to where you probably needed to make a move like that in December rather than the middle of February when you kind of already fell out of the, the real playoff picture. And so uh, based off everything that we're hearing and what Nick Nurse himself said, I kind of feel like we're going to eventually get that mutual parting of the ways news from the Raptors and him, and it'll be interesting to see what direction they go with their next head coach, and whether, you know, with so many free agents on their team, Gary Trent Jr., Fred Van Flea, Jacob Hurdle, plus extension eligibility for Ananobi and Pasto Siakam. I think this could end up being sort of a crossroads offseason for Toronto.
0: Okay, Dan, let's look at the other game in the West uh, the last couple of nights. The, the Thunder win at New Orleans. Uh, last night, did the OKC victory surprise you? And how should the Pelicans look into the future with Zion's injury history?
1: Uh, The Thunder victory didn't surprise you. They've just been very pesky all season, and they're a team that just plays super hard. Um, And even when it's chaotic, even when it's not always pretty, um, the fact that you know that they're going to be on defense giving maximum effort and then that you still have a go-to guy In Shea at the other end, and yet you can count on getting just really good complimentary performances from a Josh Giddey or even, you know, the wing Jalen Williams wasn't good last night, but he still made some nice plays going to the basket. Uh, They're just deeper, I think, than most people understand in in players that can make an impact. Uh, Looking at New Orleans, they're they're in a very tough spot because I'm sure we talked about this earlier in the year. They look like contenders. Um, around start of 2023. They were near the top of the Western Conference, and they still have that feeling with a healthy Zion Williamson. But Zion and Brendan Ingram have played in 93 games together across four years. Um, that's not a large enough sample to understand what you need. And now you're finishing another season where they weren't playing together. And so it makes it that much harder to sort of flesh out the rest of your roster. Can you go make a bigger move on the trade market, or do you just sort of have to sit still until you actually understand what this group can look like um when they play an extended stretch together or you just operate under the assumption that hey that's never going to happen and we have to build out our team in the image of okay zion's gonna play in maybe 41 games a year
0: okay back to okc uh at minnesota on uh, friday night minnesota with gobert yeah at least eligible to return i'm sure he'll play uh, but probably uh, now without Nas Reed again and obviously without Jaden McDaniels. So how do we handicap that game Friday night?
1: That's going to be an interesting one. I, the Thunder like to play smaller for stretches, or even if they have the big Jalen Williams on the court. Um, we saw a lot of Dario Sharks at center uh, against uh, New Orleans. I'm wondering if they're going to continue to downsize, and, and if you do, and I would bet that they will. Uh, how does Minnesota counter? You can't really, they're not built to, with Rudy Gobert and Carl Anthony Towns to keep up with any of what would the OKC Thunder's uh, power forwards would be, and then if you just throw into the equation that Dario Saric is your five, yeah, you're giving up a lot on the glass in that scenario, um, but you're also mismatching the Timberwolves into oblivion on the defensive end, and when they don't have Jaden McDaniels to fall back on, it puts a lot of pressure on um, Rudy Gobert and Carl Anthony Towns to defend on the perimeter while also putting a ton of pressure on Edwards and and Kyle Anderson to really be on point. And that's a game, as of right now, even though it'll be on the road, I almost kind of expect Oklahoma City to win, just based off how weird the matchups are going to play out. The big defining factor could be if we see Anthony Edwards or Kyle Anderson really give Shea Gildas-Alexander some problems in the half court on defense, that is probably Minnesota's best pass, best pass to victory.
0: Also, it would help if, uh, if, you know, if basically, uh, you know, if They they can't have their primary scorer go 2-for-17 like he did on Tuesday night, huh?
1: No, they can't. I'm hoping – I think it looked like he was dealing with, like, a shoulder twinge or something, and so we'll have to see how healthy Anthony Edwards actually looks in this game, too.
0: All right, so looking ahead to the weekend and, you know, far into the weekend because the Suns and the Clippers aren't playing until the 5 o'clock game Arizona time on Sunday – uh, Paul George was on the practice court yesterday. You know, at least they uh, had video of him on the practice court. I'm not sure how much he did. Uh, but how much does the questionable availability of Paul George factor into this series in your mind? I, you know, pardon me if that's just an ignorant question, but I think I needed to ask it.
1: <laughs> uh, look, it's, it's huge. And I, I don't want to say it'd be surprised if he plays this series, but looking at the first three, four, or five games, I feel like you can almost pencil him out, and that just makes it so much harder as the Clippers to defend the Suns, which are, who are already a team that are just difficult to defend in, inherently. Uh, you have Kawhi Leonard, and now you're all of a sudden in this decision-making of Vortex where it's, well, do we put him on Kevin Durant or do we throw him on Devin Booker because we don't have Paul George to do that, and Devin Booker is going to be the one who is going to move around more off the ball. And we just don't trust, when looking at their starting lineup, a Nick Batum or an Eric Gordon um, to be the guy that goes after him, and it just puts you in a bind right off the bat, and it's going to put a ton of pressure, I think, on um, you know their smaller lineups because I don't know if Dubach can keep up with some, of, or Plumley, for that matter, can keep up with some of the Suns' peak lineups, uh, or you're going to really have to lean on a, a Terrence Mann here, or hope that Robert Covington, or even a Marcus Moore senior, was not really played well um, for most of the season and kind of fell out of their rotation to close the regular season. Uh, it, it's just going to be a really tough stretch for them, however long Paul George is out. And if he's not playing at all in the first round, I honestly don't know that I see a realistic path for the Clippers surviving against this team at full strength.
0: Warriors and Kings, uh, the regional battle, first time they've ever played in the postseason. Uh, do, does other te- either team, uh, well, was this like the first team that gets a stop wins? or Is that how this works? Or how would you handicap the, the Warriors and Kings?
1: Yeah, that's going to be super interesting. And there are also, you know, a lot of people think that the NBA has become homogenous now. And these are two teams that play offense in an entirely different fashion than a lot of other NBA squads. And so that will be fascinating to watch, looking at all the off-ball movement they like to generate in the half court. What I do think is interesting is that the Warriors' defense has been superb when they're playing at home. And the Kings' defense has actually been in the top ten when they're playing on the road, and so that's sort of just this little fascinating wrinkle, and I think the Kings have done a better job of defending opponents deep into the shot clock. They've just given up some higher-end opportunities there, and so I am with you that I think this is going to come down to um, a a defensive battle, or at least in a sense, what team is going to be able to uphold their offensive principles for longer, and I think that's why so many people are going to favor the Warriors just because they're clearly more proven in the postseason than this iteration of a Kings team that's really playing out its first full year together and doesn't have a ton of players. I mean, Harrison Barnes has played in big games, but aside from him, even even Sabonis has not played in a ton of huge playoff games.
0: Well, let's go back to the East here. Hawks and Celtics, Nets versus Sixers. Are they competitive series? Either of those or both or none? I wouldn't
1: expect um, uh, Hawks-Celtics to be that competitive. I just – Atlanta's going to run out of defensive answers for Boston – you have DeAndre Hunter, um, who can go after one of Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum, and then you have DeJounte Murray, who can in theory defend the other, but they can't play 48 minutes a game. You're going to have to rely a lot on Jalen Johnson. Um, some of Boston's smaller lineups can give you problems and might play John Collins or Lincapella, uh off the court in situations. Fixers-Nets, I don't expect it to be too competitive, but something to monitor would just be, what does James Harden look like? Because he has been dealing with that Achilles issue, and if he's not really able to attack um, with the same level of speed or explosion. Brooklyn does have the length on the wings, plus a very switchable big in Nick Claxton that can cause problems for their offense. And so I would still expect them to win the series, but if it becomes sort of like this six- or seven-game affair and you have to play these unnecessary games before heading into the second round, probably against Boston, uh, that becomes a potential issue.
0: All right, so Knicks and Cavs. Uh, Let's assume that Julius Randle plays and is at least somewhat effective. How would you look at this series if that happened?
1: I still think I would probably favor Cleveland in six games or so. Um, The top end of their defense just easily uh, is better than the top end of the Knicks' defense, and I think uh, that having Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, they're uniquely built to keep the Knicks out of the paint um, or at least frustrate them once they get there. And that becomes a huge problem for not only a Jalen Brunson, um, but an R.J. Barrett who's not been efficient this year, but he's trying to get to the foul line. He's trying to get into the lane because his jumper has not really been there for him this year. It also poses problems for for Julius Randle um, because if he's going to play, you have to imagine he won't be at 100% with that ankle injury. Is he going to be able to attack mismatches or Evan Mobley, if Mobley's the guy that's going to be on him when he likes to get into the lane? Um, And if he can't put the Cavs in rotation, is he going to be okay in sort of a more pick-and-pop role where he's just jacking a ton of threes off the catch? And so I think that Cleveland just ultimately, while they have their own questions on offense, they like to play a little too slow at points. Will they get enough shooting out of that um, small forward spot, which is crucial because you're not going to get any shooting out of the Mobley or Allen front court. That those are real questions, but I think that their defense is just really built to irritate and disrupt New York's offensive flow.
0: Last up, looking ahead, you know Milwaukee with the Middleton injury situation, we saw them you know without him in uh, you know the series against Boston last year. You know, does it's, it's, it's a similar result? Does he have to play for them to have long term success this year?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely, and I think it's – encouraging that he did say he would have been playing towards the end of the regular season if it were the playoffs. And when you look at what people are most concerned about with regard to Milwaukee, it's been their half-court offense. Uh, they've actually had like a top-five half-court offense ever since Middleton made his second return, which I think was in the middle of January. And so it's just inter- instrumental what he can do as a shot maker in the two-man game with Giannis. If he is playing, and if he's even 70%, uh, that seems to me, even more so than the Celtics, kind of has to be the favorite to come out of the East because of how complete a package they have when they have their top four guys in Lopez, Middleton, Drew Holiday, and Giannis available.
0: Dan, always good talking to you. Thanks much. Uh, have fun.
1: You as well. Thanks for having me. Take care.
0: Our pleasure. Dan Favale, Bleacher Report. Always a fountain of information from Dan, so check out all of his work at Bleacher Report and uh, – We'll have them on, I'm sure, throughout the postseason and uh, our usual arsenal of NBA uh, experts. And uh, Dan's certainly uh, near the top of that list for sure.